Having built a reputation as the executive chef for the largest luxury hotel in Texas, Andre Natera is a renowned expert in both the food and hospitality industry. Every week, Andre is going to invite the restaurant industry's biggest innovators, entrepreneurs, and experts at running the pass into his kitchen. Fine dining is not meant to be in a to-go box. So, the legendary team behind Comedor decided to take on the world of meal kits to elevate the home chef. What's your background and how'd you end up here at Comedor? Yeah, so Comedor kind of, uh, this project for me kind of evolved organically. Um, I had just gotten back from, uh, from Tulum doing the, the Noma Mexico pop-up, which was probably one of the highlights of my career. And, super inspired more than I already was with, with Mexican cuisine and really sourcing these, these incredible ingredients that you really can't have access to in the States. Uh, so I, at that time I was I was working on a project with Jesse Griffiths of Daidue and we, we opened up a taqueria together uh, in the fairground and that was really the first time I was put together a tamal program, a masa program, really focused around heirloom corn from different regions of Mexico and I had hooked up with uh, a company in Mexico called Tamoa uh, a couple, Francisco and Sofia, who source corn from different regions that don't grow commercially. We essentially buy the, the surplus from these different uh, pueblos and whatnot. And it, it's amazing because it's, it's sustainability of the, that community and uh, they continue to do what they've done for generations. Um, and I think uh, I think what was happening on on this side of the spectrum was that Comedor was a project being uh, born from uh, Chef Philip Spear, who's part of the owners and also the pastry chef and, and his partner William Ball and they were working on a, a Mexican inspired restaurant and at that time they had a, a chef from Mexico that they were working on this project and she obviously lived in Mexico and didn't have a lot of experience in the United States with sourcing with the masa program and I had just loved I do it taqueria and uh, was assisting them with this and you know, things kind of organically, just the relationship kind of organically shaped itself and it seemed that it was, it was a better fit for me to, to, to open the restaurant as a chef and run the program. And I've been here now uh, since the opening back in April and, and here we are. <laughs> yeah. So you, you mentioned uh, you were in the Noma, Mexico pop-up. How, how'd that wind up? Yeah, so I, I initially went to, to Noma uh, in 2014, I believe, uh, in Copenhagen to go yeah. stage. And, uh, that was that was also you know a life-changing experience in in itself just going to see how they operate and how they roast the ranks to be one of the best restaurants in the world and, and again it was it was a stage for me and it was more about learning opening my eyes to techniques and culture and my time there i was spent in the test kitchen so i felt like i meant, made a lot of really uh, good intimate relationships with the chefs you know people like rocio and, and Lars and thomas Friebel and even renee himself uh, as opposed to being just one of the the interns that was you know picking herbs all day or you know, stuff like that, so I was able to to to, to get a nice and in, intimate relationship with some of the chefs. And when the Noma Mexico project uh, came about, you know I think Chef Renee knew that I had you know huge ties to Mexico, my family, my cookie, my cuisine. So he invited me to be part of the team in the test kitchen. Uh, so I was there with, with five other chefs there and we were part of the, the menu development team uh, in advance of the restaurant coming. So we spent probably six weeks working on the menu and then the rest of the restaurant came and then, you know, it was just balls to the wall on that project uh, in the jungle, 100 degrees, 100% humidity, working in shorts, Birkenstocks, 
wringing out your shirt, probably six quarts of sweat a day and swimming in the ocean for staff meal. <laughs> so did any of that translate to what you were doing here in Commodore when you first Yeah, opened? I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like um, techniques um, have, have always have impacted my cooking, you know, things that I've learned from them, especially from a, a fermentation aspect. Uh, I, I do a lot of fermentation here and mainly because I find that able to be an outlet for byproduct use and and I've really and it's that was also something that Jesse Griffiths you know really instilled in me and in, in not only having respect for nose to tail on animals but also you know root to leaf on vegetables and, and finding ease for for every product and you know now we're you know we're making all kinds of misos and ferments and shoyus and things like that here and and obviously that's the trend these days and everybody has ventured down the, the path of koji and fermentation. Uh, but more so, I think that, that there's a lot of things that lend themselves really well to preparations with masa. And, and one of the things that I've found is that that masa provides an inherent sweetness that could either be savory or sweet and, and super versatile. Um, so yeah, you know, and like for example, one of the things that I, I tasted for the first time in, in Copenhagen was kelp oil, roasted kelp oil. Um, kelp, kelp oil. Yeah, kelp so they oil. take these incredible Japanese uh, sheets of kelp kombu, roast it, and, and make an oil of it. And uh, there's so much flavor and and the, the aromatic nuances of it, and the umami is is, is outstanding. And I've I've kind of carried that with me, and I incorporate that in a lot of my cooking. And so you know, techniques, uh, the way that things are prepared, the way that you know you use forged items, things like that, it has definitely carried carried with me in here. So I see a lot of chefs kind of gravitating towards this uh, idea of a zero waste kitchen. And, and it makes sense, kind of the things that you talked about, the nose to tail, the uh, uh, root to leaf. Um, but it also impacts the bottom line, right? Food cost gets lower. Um, it, it starts to bring an awareness around where the money's going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, as everybody knows, margins are tight in the restaurant industry, yeah. labor is tight. Um, whether you're a sole a sole owner of a restaurant or yeah. you have 20 investors, um, there's there's goals and metrics that you have to meet, and you have to be creative to to find those ways. And you know, if you want to have the nice wagyu cut of beef on your menu, then you got to find other areas of the menu to reduce that cost. And and I think that you know, there's a lot of things that that you can use and make them a star of your menu instead of a garnish and stuff like that. And that, that's a big way to reduce costs. And the team in the kitchen, do, does that uh, does that click with them right away or does it take a minute for them to understand kind of the bigger picture? Yeah, I, for me, it's all about empowerment. Yeah. Um, if you approach it as telling the staff, hey, we need to lower food costs, don't waste this, don't waste that. It, it may go in one year and out, to, out the other, depending on the kitchen, depending on the culture. but. I think the way that I approach it here is I empower my staff to be creative. I empower my staff to learn. Um, so I, I kind of pose it in the way of like, hey, uh, these uh, these radish greens are, are incredibly delicious. They're beautiful. Why don't we not use them for staff meal? And why don't why don't you come up with a project and, and present it to me? And we'll try and find that way on the menu. And that way you have your first dish on the menu. Like take these greens, ferment them or make a pro, you know, make something out of it, present it to us and let's taste it and, you know, discuss it. Maybe that becomes a menu item or at the very minimum, a component of a menu item. And even as a young cook, I think that, I mean, you know, like when something that you created is on the menu, like yeah. that gets you excited, that gets you ready to go back to work and be like, you know, that's me, that's something that, you know, I may not be the head chef, but something that I created is on that menu and people are enjoying that and they're gonna walk away talking about something that 
I, I, you know, I raised. So when you're a young cook, sometimes you get excited about the opportunity to one day get your item on the menu or a dish on the menu. Do you do something with your staff uh, to help kind of uh, create that so their ideas can come forward? Yeah, um, one of the things that we uh, put in place here is, uh, a, I guess, call it like a cookbook club, cookbook club. And every month we draw names and if your number gets drawn, you get to, we order you a cookbook, whatever your, your choice. You know, it could be any cookbook, any cuisine. Uh, it could be a technique book, like a fermentation book, whatever. And then at the end of the month, each cook who is participating will present a dish inspired by that cookbook. So that allows them the opportunity to, to create based on something they learned, something inspired by, a technique. And uh, that's also an opportunity for them to create something amazing. And we've had many cooks put menus on the uh, uh, items on the menu that were born out of the cookbook club. What, what's it like working in your kitchen with you and the rest of the team? I mean, you got Phil Spear in there and yeah, I mean, a uh, couple of legends in the game. Yeah, yeah. Philip Spear is definitely a legend uh, who, you know, essentially put helped put Uchi on the map nationwide. Yeah. And, and he comes from a lot, a lot of experience. And uh, but he's he's been really good about um, the division of power, I guess, to call it, you know, pastry time, pastry land in his land. And the, the savory time is my time and I'm the executive chef. Um, but he's also a great soundboard. He's uh, he's someone that him, that the two of us work together to to accomplish the same goal, and um, you know for for me the way I see our culture is that you know it's respectful first, you know, and uh, I feel I like to treat everybody like we're all on the same level, you know I don't ever call it just my food I don't ever call it just Philip's food, it's all of our food and we should all care about it equally and we should all have the same respect for for everything and for each other and. Obviously a family, you know, I don't, I don't like it to be a place where, where people are screaming and throwing and things like that. And I think those days are gone yeah. and it's more, it's more of a, a habitat of, of respect and creation and empowerment and strength and diversity, really. One of the things that I think you guys do that I've never seen before is you guys are all pretty fit. You have your run club, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, maybe you guys do yoga together. Yeah, yeah. So why is that an important part of the culture you've created? Yeah, um, and and to be honest, that, that was largely first driven um, by Chef Philip. Uh -huh. um, so Chef Philip and the other owner, William Ball, they were both they connected actually through sobriety. So they met going through through sobriety. Chef Philip is I think six years sober, uh -huh. and uh, he shifted his focus when he became sober on being healthy and his mental awareness and you know exercising and running and things like that. And uh, so, so work that kind of came from is that when we were first opening the restaurant, it was myself, Chef Philip Spear, and uh, Chef Alan, who's now in New York. Yeah. Um, you know, we were working 16-hour day. You know, opening hours. Yeah. We were here at 8 a.m. working till 2 a.m. and uh, doing it all over again. And we we knew that we needed a, a mental break, a physical break, a clarity. And we're like, we we all like like to run. Um, I, I like to run, I like to work out, and Chef Philip was doing that too. So we were like, man, let's, let's, start, let's start taking a break at 10 a.m. and going on a run. So we started bringing our running gear and we'd go do a little 5K. And before we knew it, we were inviting all the other industry people and it just kind of, it caught on really, really quick. And we had, before we knew it, we had 20 people showing up to run with us every morning, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 10 a.m. And it was also like a way to, to create a big camaraderie with other people in the industry. And then before we knew, we had people that weren't in the industry showing up, and it's continued on even today. Like, there's still a run club. There was there was social distancing running and, and all that. Um, 
And to add to that, you know, we thought, well, you know, we had connections with people at Lululemon who really were striving to, to share that mental awareness. And uh, one of them, uh, Britt Yeager, is a yoga instructor. So she would come, we'd move all the dining room tables out of the way and have yoga on Thursdays at 10 a.m. and invite anyone in the community to come join us. And it's really just provided an outlet for, for us to think about, to kind of shift the focus of like, instead of at 11 p.m. at night, instead of going out and getting drinks and like most of the people in the street do, it's like, I'm gonna go home, get a good night's rest and wake up and go for a run and fucking feel great for service. And you do, you feel the difference. You know, you, you get a nice run in, you feel, you know, even if you're tired, as soon as you're done, you feel like you have a, another boost of energy and it, it really changes the culture for, for those that participate. And, you know, so big mental health and awareness is, 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 has been a big part of this culture as well as physical. It's wild to think, and you, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, how, at least when I was coming into the kitchen, it was, you know, German chefs, French chefs, discipline, yelling, yeah. belittling, almost like a locker room mentality, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and how that type of behavior is not even, you know, it, it, it's it's looked as like a throwback, like who's, who still acts like that? Yeah. Um, and how much focus we have right now on just mental health, um, wellness, sustainability, and it, and, and the impact that it's making, even on the dining landscape, the way people eat now, the way that people cook now, the the cooks are healthier. It's it's a it's a it's a different breed of people um, in the kitchen than it was 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's a lot of great role models out there. I mean, if you if you look at Jeremy Fox, if Jeremy Fox in, in California, he talks so openly about where his mental health has gone and where it's taken him and how he's dealt with it and who he is and it's. To have that that transparency with the industry, it, it inspires people because there's so many people fighting these battles. You know, suicide suicide is a big thing in our industry. Not people, not too many people know about that. Um, there's a lot of organizations uh, that were created out of that. Ben's Friends is one of them, and uh, Chef Chef Philip is actually the chair of the Ben's Friends chapter that just started here, and we host the Ben's Friends meeting, which is essentially a an alcohol and addiction uh, meeting for people in the industry, and that was. Uh, you know, initially led by Gabriel Rucker out of, out of Portland, he came down when we, when we were first launching that. And, and you know, every week, regardless of what's going on, Chef Philip is is hosting those meetings now virtually. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that really, really find strength and support in, in talking about it. And, and not everyone that goes is sober. There's people that are still dealing with their problems, and right. you know, but it's a way to talk about it and not feel like they're they're out in the dark and they're alone. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see the community come together. Um, just shifting subjects a little bit. Uh, so we hit this pandemic. How, how did it affect business? Yeah. And how did you guys pivot? So I, I clearly remember the discussions and William, the William Ball, the, one of the owners, um, was really ahead of the game. He, he anticipated this being a big impact to the industry, to the country. And you know, he was telling us, yeah, I mean, we've got to order masks. We've got to, we've got to be prepared for this. And I think everybody was kind of blindsided by, by the pandemic and didn't really expect it until it hit home. Um, but I clearly remember March 13th that, you know, there was a, the ordinance being put in place and we shut down and having to let the staff go. And, you know, we literally spent one week thinking about what we were going to do. We knew that our food wouldn't translate into just hot food to go. Mm -hmm. So we started talking about creating something a little bit unique and uh, we ended up creating what's called assembly kitchen in which we are able to deliver our food to guests at home and and allow them to execute it themselves with like video instruction from us and recipe cards 
So they're getting these beautiful like Hospar herbs and really nice garnish and amazing Wagyu beef that's, you know, for, for them to just be able to execute it in a short amount of time, like, like we'll sous a steak, send it to them, and then they're just searing it, basting it with butter, put it on a plate, serving it with incredible mole, cooking tortillas, or we're par cooking our heirloom corn tortillas for them. And they have all of that in their house. And they're still getting the gratification of cooking for themselves, but also they're learning new things like roasting bone marrow at home. Nine out of 10 people that, that don't work in the industry would never buy bone marrow and try and cook it at home. And when you break that barrier and introduce them to something like, oh, shit, you know, this is not too bad. Demystifying a little bit what we yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we, we really focused on that pivot of, of creating this in-home dining experience that, that bridged the gap of that intimacy that you're looking for and you're missing during the pandemic. Uh, we were able to, to keep all of our chefs. We brought on four cooks. We brought on like roughly four front of house people. We were delivering the meals in-house. And then we just recently started shipping both statewide and nationwide. Wow. So uh, reaching to all corners of the country with our food and, and you know, doing fundraiser with Chris Shepard through Southern Smoke. And uh, it's, it's, been quite, it's been quite a learning experience. Uh, we learned so much about ourselves, so much about our food um, and just how we, we prep and, you know, how people perceive things when you're, when you're getting it in home versus in a seat in the dining room. So you're opening soon. Uh, what, what is reopening going to look like for you? Yeah, so we're, we're looking at opening this week. And, um, you know, obviously with a 75% occupancy limit and six foot social distancing guidelines, that really limits the amount of seats that we can seat, the number of turns, and obviously first and foremost, the amount of business we're gonna do. So that also impacts your labor model. So essentially that's, you know, pushing us to, to run a, a leaner kitchen with less cooks. Um, we've had to trim the menu roughly in half um, and then just look at the at the, the technique in which the food is being prepared in and the simplicity of it. And how can we how can we deliver the same food that we were delivering prior to the pandemic with with uh, with less people and, and you know tighter margins? So. I don't think the customer's expectation is going to change, right? So no, and, and they're, that, they're coming in expecting the full experience. Yeah, so. you know, and that, that's that's a very good point. And you know, I was reading the other day online, maybe on Facebook or something. It's just like. People are going out to eat with the exact same expectations they did four months ago. You know, why is my food taking so long? Like, why, you know, why are you, you know, why is this guest getting his food before mine? And why is there a wait? Why do I, I mean, there's just all kinds of different things. And I think that people have to be mindful of, of the stress that's put on, you know, server staff, front of house staff, back of house staff, owners. I mean, essentially, in my opinion, the government put the responsibility on the restaurant owners and the business owners to to take this liability in their hands and decide what is safe which i don't agree with but it's it's what we're doing yeah and when you think about the amount of restaurants that have been impacted and and you know the amount of restaurants um that are going to close due to this it's um i mean it's tragic especially in this business and I, i'm not sure if people realize how small the margins are and how long it takes for a restaurant owner to get to the point where they could open up a restaurant. It might take, uh, you know, in my case, it took me 15, 20 years before I was able, ever able to get my first place and then to lose it in, in a short amount of time after that. And I'm not sure if people recognize that when you have a pandemic hit like this, it's, it's huge. It's huge. And the recovery is so much more important to, um, to have a solid plan and a good strategy of how you're going to, you know, uh, hold your market share. Um, and keep your customers and, and, and bring your old customers back and get new customers. Yeah, and I think the other part that, that 
not everyone is, is over, well, everyone is probably overlooking is that as a restaurant owner, as a chef, you're pushing, whether you like it or not, you're pushing to reopen because you need to bring that income in. You need to bring that, that, that money flow through, through the books. But how many of the restaurants can survive to shut down again if, if you have one case, one positive case, right? Yeah. The minute you get one positive case, whether it's front of house, back of house, you have to close your doors. Everybody has to take either a two week quarantine or get tested right away. So then in that time you have product, what do you do with that product? Then you got to deep clean your restaurant. If you're doing it professionally, that's three to four thousand dollars. Right. There's so many facts, and and how many restaurants are going to survive that second closure? Yeah. I mean, I, we're probably looking at a you know a twenty to thirty percent closure rate from the first pandemic or the first wave. You know, some people aren't calling it a second wave; they're calling it just the tail of the first one. But yeah, yeah I mean, there, there's so much to consider in that aspect. So, right now that you're trying to educate everyone on uh, going almost to a zero waste kitchen. One of the things that I do in my kitchens is I, I tell people uh, to not to not view the product as, uh, as as food, sometimes just view it as dollars and view the, the, the Cisco truck as the Brinks truck and, you know, dollar bills moving through the kitchen or the walk-in is a is a bank vault versus yeah. a, versus a produce cooler, um, just to kind of switch their paradigm into looking at it as dollars versus that. Um, so I, I think that education piece is important. Um, especially to young cooks, but I really like your approach of, of taking the idea of, okay, what can we turn this into? Yeah. And it, uh, it's funny. I've, I've never heard that. I, I mean, obviously product is money, but I, I love, I love your analogies there. And I think I'll use that one day, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people just don't, they don't understand. They've never worked in a kitchen like that before. And yeah. they, so, yeah, it's not that it's not, it's not that they don't care. It's just, they don't know. They've never been taught, you know, if we're, yeah. they're shucking corn, Instead of throwing the corn cobs in the trash, like we can make a really delicious stock out of that. It could be used as a thickener. You know, you can use the husk to wrap a piece of fish right. and steam it in, you know, things like that. You can make a powder out of that. There's there's so much to do with that, you know? And um, it's really about education. And then that, sh that cook walks away from this job, whether it's in a year, whether it's in six months, just like, and he's always gonna think about what he did with that product in his next job. And he may, even use that as a stepping stone in another place and just like you know what chef we should try this with this instead of throwing it away and then you know he gets he gets some uh, some merit on that at his next place if they're not already doing that so it, it's hard to think of a bigger crisis that we've um that we've had to deal with as chefs other than the one that we're dealing with now but is there something in your career that you faced that was a, a big learning point for you that made you a better chef yeah um really i think I think just kind of a accumulation of, of different experiences with different chefs and learning different things from them. Um, again, like working with Jesse Griffiths at Daidue, he opened my eyes to so many things with regards to to relationships with farmers and, and that's, that's become super paramount for me and knowing where your food comes from. And I think that a lot of chefs uh, are, are gearing towards that direction and obviously you know people like Bryce Gilmore is, is a pioneer in Austin and, and paved the way for the whole Austin uh, industry, you know, it's super important that you have relationships with farmers. You know, we were recently went out to one of our, our farmers farms and spent the day with them. And, you know, they showed us around, we picked food from their garden, from the farm and cooked lunch for them. And, and they were like mind blown at what we were able to create, you know, with no planning, just literally let's good, let's make this into a salad, let's make this into a dressing. And their minds were blown. And it's just like, 
they were so thankful and because of that our relationship has has become tenfold better yeah. you know they're super grateful they want they want to collaborate and farming should be a collaboration you know if a farmer's growing you know half an acre of product that no one really wants to purchase from what good does that do for them you know does it become feed does it become compost but if they're growing you know if they're pushing their their boundary and they're like i'm gonna go try and grow these Mexican gherkins is cucamelons because that's like a cool thing, right? Nobody gets these little baby looking cucumbers and every chef in Austin's gonna want them. Well, fuck, they're already spoken for before I pull them out of the ground. And, and that's where you kind of bridge that gap of, of creativity and it, it starts in the ground with the farmer and not so much at the table when it hits the plate. Where, where do you, since we're on the subject of creativity, where do you go to get inspired? Where do you, where do you, how do you tap into yourself to kind of get the creative juices flowing? Yeah, for me, it's always a combination of uh, of things that I've eaten or like inspiration from like times in my life, or, you know, or travel in Mexico and then product from farmers. Like if I if I see like a really beautiful plum, I'm going to be like, wow, what could I do with this plum that I've seen before in my life? You know, that is super inspiring to me or like for me, like uh, as a good example, the other day, um, I, I had brought in a few pounds of nopales from, from Dorsey and I've always really loved her nopales. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, man, I really want to make a dish centered around nopales. So I was, you know, testing different ways of preparing them and I put them in a, put them in a cure and pressed them in the vacuum machine and then let them sit for a little while. And I took it out of the bag and when, as I was taking it out of the bag, you know, the texture of this nopal that I had cut in a circular shape yep. was you know, it was super pliable and elastic like a tortilla. It had shrunk down to a super uh, nice thickness. And then it was a seasoned from the cure. And I was like, man, this is a tortilla. Like, yeah. so uh, like a dish was born out of that for me. And it was inspiring. I was just like, man, I would love to have this with some fresh cheese, some caviar and herbs. And we, you know, it created this, this taco out of a nopal. It's just, you know, house-made cheese, caviar, herbs. And the and nopal so sounds like the texture is perfect for caviar. Yeah, it is, and it, it is, man. You get a balance of acidity, you get the saltiness from the caviar, um, you get the richness of the fat from the cheese, and then all this herbaceousness. And it was just something that was kind of born out of me, and I've, I've eaten nopales my entire life. Yeah. I ate them cooked nine out of 10 times, and I was never a huge fan of eating cooked nopales with, unless it was like with eggs and a breakfast taco. I've always loved them fresh. Yeah. And so and it, it opens people's eyes to trying things in, in, in a new way, and obviously not many people eat nopales as, as most do. So. One of the things that I, I'm not sure if people know about you is you give back to the community a lot in a lot of different ways. And both of us, people might not know, are from El Paso. We did a dinner last year with some other chefs uh, where we went back home and, and uh, raised some money for a good cause. You want to talk about that? Yeah, that was uh, that was super incredibly special for me. For one, being, uh, being in the room with, with chefs like you and Jake and Rico and Fermin and Alan and it was incredible to see all of us who had not all of us have ever cooked together before but we're all from the same town hometown and for me that was my first time cooking a, a dinner like that in El Paso yeah. and my, my you know my mother was able to be there and she was basically crying she was so happy and obviously the amount of money that we raised for for the community at a time when it was really really needed was super special um, and you, you know, we have people from all over the place, you know, um, to, to have you there and creating a dessert, the dessert, I, the fermented banana dessert was amazing. That was super delicious. You know, Fedmina was doing 
all of the stuff that he does at Suerte, which is super great. Jake brought this incredible, you know, Jake runs a taqueria, right? So anytime he gets an opportunity to do a dinner, he goes balls out yeah. and he's got, you know, he has that Michelin star experience. So he brought his Robichon technique on his, yeah. on his dishes. So it's super incredible to see all that, uh, all of us come together and, and really do something for the community. It's wild to think how many great chefs have come out of that city. Because I would have never thought. Yeah. Right? right? No, yeah. there's 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 so much going on. And, you know, Andres Padilla is back in El Paso, and he worked for Bayless as one of his head guys for a long time. And I, I love seeing things like that, you know? Yeah. And it's I think it's a great place being so close to Mexico, and there is a lot of actual farming going on in there that, you know, that gap needs to be bridged. So I, I'd, I'd love to see more... Uh, evolution of the industry there in El Paso, you know, I would, I would love to do something in El Paso. You know? Yeah, so would I. We should yeah. do it again. Yeah. We should, or we should we do should it play. here. We should do it here first and then do it back over yeah. there. So uh, if you had a crystal ball and you, and you look into the future of what's coming in the industry, uh, once we get past all this and we start to normalize, where do you see, where do you see the industry growing that in terms of food trends and where do you see it going like, hey, we learned this from this pandemic and this is just not going away? Um, well, I think everybody that was in quarantine at some point or another tried to bake bread. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody is a baker now. Um, but you know, one of the big the big things right now is is uh, is baking and the use of, of heirloom grains and sourcing them locally. You know, Barton Springs Mill obviously yeah. is has revolutionized the industry. Not only in Texas, I have chefs in California that order grains from from James at Barton Springs Mill and they ship them there. Um, so he has acres and acres of all these incredible varieties of, of, of wheat and, and corn and whatnot. Um, and I, I think that's changed baking incredibly. Um, so, you know, having a baking program and, and having chefs and cooks be involved in that at all levels and not just having a designated baker, that's, I think that's going to be a big part of our industry. And everybody should learn how to bake. Right? It's, 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 to me, it's super gratifying. As a matter of fact, I, break two, I baked two sourdough bowls this morning before I came in. Did you really? Yeah, with my son and he's, he's mesmerized by it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not a great baker, but I enjoy it, I enjoy it. It's all about repetition, muscle memory, and if you're only doing it once a week, you're never gonna get great, but, um, but that's super special. Uh, I think, obviously, the fermentation trend has, has really taken off, and people creating their own koji and making their misos and vinegars and, and things like that. Um, but I think that, you know, casual dining is, is kind of where we're at right now, is like, you know, Obviously, we want these super soigné dishes, but I feel like people love to come in and, and just have a lot of comfort right now, but, you know? And tasting menus will always have their place in the industry, but uh, especially in Austin, you see less and less of them, you know? I think barley swine is, is one, Hestia is the other, um, obviously Garrison. Um, but, you know, there's, there's people that really want to to be comforted and I think that they're finding that through through a casual approach to food. Yeah. Um, you know, another big one is just uh, in Mexican cuisine. Mexican cuisine is having its moment nationwide. Everybody is trying to uh, make their own masa and nixtamalize, which to me is amazing because yeah. no, I think beyond the fact that it's beautiful, it's a timeless technique from thousands of years ago, it's so healthy. Yeah. You know, people have been eating maseca tortillas for years and years and years and it's empty, non-nutritional calories. And when you, when you get a uh, non-GMO heirloom corn and you cook it, you put it through an alkaline process and you release that niacin, that vitamin B, those amino acids, it becomes a superfood. And we're actually making them, we're making the country healthier. You know, if you look at Mexico, we're probably starting to eat more heirloom corn tortillas in the U.S. 
in Mexico itself. Really? You go to tortillerias in there and they cut they cut the masa. They cut the masa with maseca and uh, mix them out. It's I, expensive. Yeah, I didn't know it's that. It's an expensive process. You go there and there, there's a lot of maseca going on. Obviously, the chefs like, you know, Jorge Vallejo and Enrique Olvera, they're obviously using aerial corn. He has Molino, which is a sente de tortilleria. Um, but I, I'm, I'm happy to see the trend going uh, in the right direction, you know, regardless of who's doing it. And you know, and seeing the impact of Mexican cuisine on other other restaurants that aren't Mexican restaurants, you know, I see salsa matcha yeah. on everyone's menu, like not Mexican restaurants. And right. I mean, that salsa matcha you can put on your your arm, and it's delicious, man. It, yeah. Eat it on anything. So um, I love that. You know, just the way French French cuisine influenced all other cuisines, I think that Mexican cuisine is, is going to have that impact as well. So if you were going to give advice to someone getting into the business right now, uh, and I mean like maybe opening their own restaurant, whether they're a chef or a restaurant owner, what, what sort of advice would you give them to uh, be successful in this in this new world? Oh man, um, you know, I've never owned my own restaurant. I've never been a sole owner. Uh, I understand the business very, very well. And I, I just, I've never taken that plunge myself and I, I hope to soon at some point. Um, but I think my biggest advice is is, is do your due diligence. And you know, if you're opening a restaurant because you think it, you think your concept sounds cool, and that's probably not the best approach. You know, you, you have to do the due diligence that uh, comes with analytics and knowing your market and knowing what guests wants and, and things like that. You can't just have that leap of faith. Um, and uh, but also, it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot, a lot of work and. Uh, not biting off more than you can chew, really, you know, and have your business model in line and 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 how you're going to source and what your philosophy is going to be and how and you have to stand by it. So while we're on the subject of analytics, if you're opening up a restaurant, what kind of analytics are you going to look at to to understand your your target audience? Well, I, you know, for me, I think that that comes down to demographics. You know, how many? What is your 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 age group of people eating out uh, how many times a week and what neighborhoods versus the neighborhood you're looking to open in. Um, what do those cuisines look like? What does that PPA look like? Uh, what are the peak hours that they're, they're eating at? What does the traffic look like? Is there parking available? Are they gonna have to park two blocks over and walk to your restaurant? If so, what does the neighborhood look like? Do you, are people gonna feel safe walking there? Um, so I think there's a lot of different things um, you know, what percentage of the space that you're looking at is outside seating? Does it rain typically? There's there's so many things that you should take into consideration that, you know, other than walking to, to a lot where there's an, an empty shell, it's just like, man, there's a beautiful building, I'll take it, you know? So, I mean, obviously a lot of people do that due diligence, but there's there's so many factors that, and and you'll never, you'll never answer all those questions ahead of time, right? But there's so many that come and you're like, man, I would have done this different, damn, I should have thought about this after the fact. I mean, you just, I'm, I'm sure you were involved in the design at, at uh, Fairmont, correct? Uh, no, I was in, involved after the fact. So I was involved in the, in, the, in the concept design, but not necessarily the interior design. Yeah. So for the kitchen, from the kitchen standpoint, how many, how many times since you guys have opened, have you, have you thought of things that you would have done different that would have made you know, service more efficient um, or anything in that respect? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things. Um, and that's, that's part. Sometimes you have the, sometimes you have the luxury of of changing that early on is sometimes you're just dealt that hand and you got to make it work. And I'm not sure if people understand how expensive kitchen equipment is. Like, yeah. okay, you want a you want a new stove. Okay, maybe it's six thousand for a cheap one, but if you want a good one, you're maybe looking at twenty five thousand. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, 
it's the the difference of buying a combi oven which is twenty five thousand, versus a, a steel convection oven which is a, a fraction of the price but you can accomplish so much more you yeah. know and it's are you able to make that investment make your life easier so those are the things you get to balance and, and that also goes into like you know whether it's a self-financed project or you have angel investors or whatnot that can put that money up for you so there's lots to consider in that aspect chef andre natero will be back as he takes a visit to the future site of the largest culinary project in dallas renowned chef junior borges set out to search for his own restaurant but found something greater the opportunity to leave a legacy through an expansive undertaking that's uniting a community